Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to the James Bond ATZ Podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. This is a special episode uh, because it is about Albert R. Broccoli, who uh, it's no hyperbole to say that beyond Ian Fleming, he is the man most responsible for the success of James Bond as a as a film franchise, really. Obviously, Fleming invented him, and then Broccoli is the man that's carried the torch for Bond and continues to, in a way, through his family. So, um, yeah, Albert Romolo Broccoli, born in April 5th, 1909, died in June 27th, 1996, known to all his friends and family as Cubby. And that's how we'll be referring to him in the podcast, I imagine, because it's easier than calling him Albert Romolo Broccoli every time. So he obviously, he's an American film producer, made more than 40 pictures, films throughout his career. Obviously, the co-founder of Dan Jack and Eon Productions. Uh, and obviously, his, his biggest contribution to the film industry and to obviously this this world that we cover in this podcast is that he's the producer of, of pretty much all of the James Bond films. So let me just, we'll run through his credits qu- quickly and then we will get into his life. But it's worth mentioning here that a lot of the stories around Cubby will be covering in the individual film episodes as well. So for example, when we're talking about casting Sean Connery you'll find that in the Doctor No episode or even in the Sean Connery episode it won't be here we're talking just about the life of Cubby Broccoli. Right so the credits on the Bond franchise co-producer with Harry Saltzman so they're Doctor No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, You Only Live Twice, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun. Then he's listed as co-executive producer with Harry Saltzman on Thunderball then he's sole producer on The Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, For Your Eyes Only, and Octopussy. Then he's co-producer with Michael G. Wilson on A View to a Kill, The Living Daylights, and The License to Kill. And then his final credit on the Bond films was as presenter slash consultant on GoldenEye. And ever since then, the films have been released under the banner of Albert R. Broccoli's Eon Productions Presents, <laughs> Ian Fleming's James Bond 007 in... So then his, his sort of credit lives on in that. So that's a bit of an introduction into Cubby Broccoli. But Brendan, why don't you tell us a bit about Cubby's early life? So I'll take you back to 1909 and in Queens in New York City, where Cubby was born. He was the younger of two children. 
and he's born to immigrants from the Calabria region of Italy. Giovanni Broccoli and Christina Ventz. So he actually almost didn't survive from his actual birth. He was a breech birth and he was born and had trouble breathing. Luckily, his grandmother, Marietta, uh, she'd resorted to a, a remedy that was traditional from the region where they were originally from, involved the insertion of a, a head of a black chicken into Cubby's mouth. What? Yeah, I know. But it worked. And so he started to breathe again. So mm. it saved Cubby's life. And then growing up as a youngster, he'd, he'd sell fruit and veg on a, on a stall in New York. And then in the winter, he'd sell Christmas trees. And all that produce was grown on, on the broccoli farm. Not the, not the broccoli farm. The broccoli's <laughs> farm. Incidentally, on the side note of that, their name actually is believed to derive from his ancestors, so Cubby's ancestors, who crossed the cauliflower with pea seeds to create the vegetable yeah, broccoli. Yeah, I, I came across this quite a few times when I was reading, but it... So what you're saying, is it, it apocryphal? Is it crap? <laughs> well, it's... it's A lot of people are disputing it. That well, there's no actual evidence. I found a lot of people saying it was it was true. I mean, it, it definitely had to be invented. So Broccoli definitely, definitely comes from that region in Italy as well. So I yeah. think the two things could be connected. Yeah. And it was—it is a cross-pollination. So I'm yeah. gonna—I'm giving—I'm awarding take it, it to him. Take yeah, it, yeah. take it. I mean, he's, he's done enough to not have to use that as a <laughs> yeah, that's true. As, as a claim to fame. Um, so the name Cubby came from his cousin, who was uh, a mobster, Pat de Kiko, de Sico, de Sico, de Sico, Chicho, Chicho. Well, he gave him the name—the nickname Cubby—after a comic strip character who was called Kabibble and so that eventually got shortened down to Cubby the Cubby that we know now so when on the death death of his father the rest of his family moved to Florida but he stayed put in Queens in New York City with his grandmother and um, he worked many different jobs including making coffins but it was a trip to see his cousin uh, when he went to LA that gave an ambition for for film his cousin was a, an actor's agent and introduced Cubby to certain people in the film industry that inspired him to go ahead, move forward and pursue that career within film. But I'm not going to touch on that. So, yeah, it's getting going over to California was really the start of Cubby's career in film. He went over not permanently to, to stay with his cousin um, Pat, but just he was kind of coerced into going over there because he was telling him how good it was. And went over to visit and see what the see what the place was like. Um, and when he when he when he went first went over there, interestingly, the first day they went over to uh, Pat de, de Sico's where he lived. And within I don't know a few few minutes, a couple of hours, there was a knock at the door, and Cubby goes up to open the door. Cary Grant stood there, uh, just saying, "Is is Pat in?" <laughs> He's like, "What's what's going on here?" And apparently, through that throughout the course of that day, just celebrities turned up the house just to just to see this this his cousin and um, obviously Cubby's there thinking, "What this is amazing! What's what's going on?" That evening, apparently, and this is according to his his autobiography, he went to a bar and he was he was with Pat and um, he was just playing with some silver coins on the on the table that he he had in his pocket. For some reason, he had like I think he said he had three silver coins on him at the time, and he was playing with these these coins and a man who sat just a few seats away, turned over to him and just said to him, heads or tails? And eventually they just had a little bet on whether it was heads or tails. And he lost $3 on 
the, the three coins that he had to this man. So the man bought him a drink, uh, and it was uh, Howard Hughes. So opposite him. Wow. So that's a pretty interesting mm-hmm. um, entry to your, your time in in California. But it doesn't. It, he didn't get involved in films early on. He was there for quite a while, and then he eventually decided to stay. Started working there. Um, he landed a job with the Paris Beauty Parlor Supply Company, based in San Francisco, selling hair nets, shampoos, conditioners, and small hair dryers. Uh, and then he had a job with an exclusive Beverly Hills jeweler, John Gershgorn. So he, he did those for quite a while, but it wasn't until he met Joseph Shent, uh, who's head of 20th Century Fox at the time, who finally got him a job as a, a gopher. And uh, do you, you know what a gopher is? Go for this, go for that. Exactly, yeah. So the the, the guy who just gets anything that the, the kind of big big chiefs need, like coffees, suits, a, cars, a anything like that. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. So yeah, he was doing that for a while. That was his first kind of got into the film industry at quite a low level. It was at this point that he met his first wife, Gloria uh, Blondell, and it was that was the reason that he decided that he needs to focus on his career. He kind of had a lot of these jobs and he was enjoying living in California by the sounds of it. Um, but at this point, he thought, right, I'm going to put some effort in and, and, and try and try and make it in, in the business because I've got a wife now. So he his his big break really was working on the film called The, the Outlaw, which is it's a, a western directed by Howard Hughes and an uncre- uncredited co-director of Howard Hawks, which confused me initially. I actually always get those two confused. <laughs> Howard Hughes, obviously of Spruce Goose fame, and then uh, Howard Hawks, uh, bringing up baby, gentlemen prefer blonde. Which one's the aviator? Um, Howard Hughes, the Spruce Goose. He he, he had the, he had a, an aviation company. Right, but he also the, made the, films Hughes, as well, right? He also made films, yeah. Um, <laughs> But he so on, on this Hudson outlaw set, Hawk? so he went. It's not associated with Hudson Hawk, <laughs> uh, but we, we'll talk about that in the Hudson Hawk podcast when we when we start it. Um, but anyway, he on this on the outlaw, he he'd met Howard Hawks before, and they had quite an easygoing relationship. So he he felt like he could say to him, "Could he have a job?" So he Howard Hawks needed an assistant on his on on the the outlaw, and he and he got the role. He he got the job working on a pretty big film at the time. It had Jane Russell in it, and it was her breakthrough role. Obviously, became pretty famous after that. Interestingly, while he was on set, on uh, working with uh, on the outlaw, he was asked by uh, to to look after Jane Russell and like keep an eye on her instead of uh, hiring bodyguards. And that was apparently because Hughes was a bit of a ladies' man, and he had a lot of. You, if you if you search on Google, you can find he's got a big list of female people that he's associated with. And apparently, at that time, he he didn't want bodyguards that he didn't know looking after Jane Russell because he had a thing for her. <laughs> Apparently nothing happened. So he got Cubby to do it, which was quite a big job for a, for a guy to do. And, and he, he asked Cubby to do it because he was married and he trusted him. So that was mm. that's quite a nice way to get some kind of trust on, on your first job in the, the film industry. After Outlaw, things changed quite a bit. So Pearl Harbor happened in 1941 and suddenly the whole of the American film industry changed. And in many ways, and especially for Cubby, it was for the better because America had a massive propaganda engine. They they suddenly, all the filmmakers started making propaganda films and they just all had work. And it was massive over there. Obviously, you know, military in America is enormous and he, he just got work. Sure, he's doing loads of stuff, working on morale boosters, warnings against careless talk, how to black out windows, dig shelters, all these different things. So he was just thrown into this massive world of, of filmmaking. Um, he eventually became a, a, an ensign in, in the Navy. So um, and that's that's as far as he got in, in the Navy. And then he came out, came out of there 
Um, and interestingly, had a bit of kind of moved away from from what he was doing to an extent because he became a talent agent for Charlie Feldman at a company called Famous Artists. And his role was covering RKO and the Motion Picture Center. So he suddenly just started working with lots of clients and, and, and doing dealing with that side of the business. But that's really the last bit we can say about him until he, he started his next part of his career, which, um, of course, will be when he started making films. But there is a story that we, we need to cover about Cubby that, that happened um, over the course of, of this period. Uh, and it's an interesting one, but there's there's not a lot of information about it. And I'll, I'll explain why in a bit. But he was uh, alleged to have been involved in a, an altercation with a comedian and Three Stooges creator, Ted Healy, outside uh, the Trocadero nightclub before Ted Healy died in 1937. And there's loads of different sources on this and there's loads of different accounts of what actually happened. But according to, to most of the sources, it was alleged that actor Wallace Beery, he was a massive MGM actor at the time, Broccoli and film producer Pat DiCicco, who we know that is alleged to be a mobster anyway, beat him so badly that he fell into a coma and, and died in, in 1937. But the evidence around it is quite difficult to navigate. And obviously, it's a long time ago. But one of the major reasons that, they, that, that there's no real evidence that exists on it is because of these two people who existed, Eddie Mannix and Howard Strickling. And these were known as fixers for MGM Studios. And what they used to do at the, at, at the time was if any actors or directors were doing something that was wrong and they didn't want to go into the newspaper, they would fix it. They would... So, you know, speak to the papers, speak to the other people involved and, and and stop the news getting out. And there's actually a book called Fixers uh, written by a man called E.J. Fleming. And when I was researching this, it just kept saying Fleming. So I was getting very confused about how this was all pulled together. Yeah, so Beery was immediately dispatched to a long vacation in Europe until the story died down. Stories around Broccoli were, uh, or could be, were... Um, he, he admitted that he was in, indeed involved in a fistfight with Healy at the Trocadero. Uh, but he later modified his story, stating that a heavily intoxicated Healy had picked a fight with him and the two uh, had briefly scuffled and then shook hands and, and parted ways. In, in other reports, Broccoli admitted to pushing Healy but not striking him. And there's a lot of disagreement over how, how the events actually happened due to the alcoholism of Healy. But because of all this lack of interest, there's not a lot of information it, it was, was kind of found about it. And there's not a lot of interest from the authorities about it as well. So mm. it wasn't like the police were trying to find out who it was. There, there wasn't really much interest. And because of that, an autopsy didn't take place until after Ted Healy had been embalmed. So when they did actually do an autopsy, he was soaked in alcohol. So they said, we can't use this body to tell you anything. <laughs> so the, after, after that, the Los Angeles County Coroner reported that Healy died of acute toxic nephritis, secondary to acute and chronic alcoholism. And um, the investigation was closed and there was no indication in the report that his death was caused by physical assault. So hmm. big news, but it's very strange. I mean, you, you know, that wouldn't happen these days, but um, I, yeah, there's not a lot of I, actual... I guess it shows how much of a small fry at that time Cubby was because, the, you know, the hmm. press wasn't going after it. Yeah. But um, interesting, you said about the fixers. You've seen LA Com- Confidential. They cover that sort of world, don't they, really well yeah. in that film? Hmm. Yeah. It's uh, but yeah, it's a really interesting story, and obviously nothing in Cubby's book that that talks about that. That's that's something that's fallen into the the history books, but um, or not into the history books. Under the carpet, but yeah. There's not a lot of inf- yeah. There's not a lot of information on that. So, so there we go. That's the that's the um, the scandal. Yes. 
So Cobby's success in the film industry really began when he joined forces with an Oscar-winning filmmaker called Irving Allen. Irving Allen had won an Academy Award in 1948 for a short movie that he produced called Climbing the Matterhorn. So he was a big deal in Hollywood at the time. Cubby formed a partnership with him in 1952 and they made formed a production company called Warwick Films Productions and they named it after the hotel in which they, um, they used to meet and discuss their projects. So they had grand plans to make films in America. They found that actually wasn't as easy as they hoped it would be, even though they had an Oscar winner on their side. But um, they, they were really hustling hard to, to make that money and they just weren't able to come up with it. So what they did is they sort of looked around to see where you could get money to make films from. And they found that in Europe and in England specifically, there were a lot of incentives being offered by governments to film in, in, in those countries. So they relocated to England to make use of this thing called the Edy Levy. And um, it meant that basically it's quite complicated, but it's a tax break like you get now. But it means that successful films that were made in Britain with British stars, you would get more money from them at the box office. You'd get a, bit, a higher stake in them. So what Cubby and Irving Allen did is they would recruit big American stars, but then work with British crews in international locations, often uh, Commonwealth locations, because again, there was um, benefits for, for filming there as well. But what the Warwick films offered was real solid production values. These weren't films made cheap. These were films that made to look great. And often they they sort of began to reflect Cubby's passion for, for travel and adventure. He was very much... An adventure. I read this story how how he joined uh, some sort of yacht race just for for fun um, and 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 gone travelling doing that. And they actually secured the actor Alan Ladd for their first film. Alan Ladd, interestingly, his son later on would go on to release the films as the head of head of a film studio. But that's that's later on. But anyway, so the first three Warwick films, uh, 1953's The Red Beret, released in America as The Paratrooper starred Alan Ladd, and you'll like this, was directed by Terence Young and uh -huh. written by Richard Maybaum. So this is where the mm -hmm. Bond world starts to sort of formulate. Obviously, we don't know about it because Bond's not come on the scene yet. 1953's The Black Knight, that also had Alan Ladd, and also starred Peter Cushing and Patrick Troughton, so I'm quite interested to see that one. And then 1954's Hell Below Zero. Uh, again, um, all three of those films were international hits. Um, and interestingly, under Warwick, Terence Young directed a film for Cubby at Warwick in 1958 called No Time to Die. So, fun fact for you. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll just have to watch that one. <laughs> yeah. So, like I said, they, they enjoyed some moderate success. They often filmed in Commonwealth locations uh, under this thing called the Empire Development Scheme. And this is where the world of Bond, like I said, starts to percolate. So, Ted Moore, who um, was future director of photography on Bond films, he was a regular cinematographer for them. They hired Ken Adam on uh, a film, and obviously that's where he got his um, break into industry as well. Ken Adam worked with Sid Kane and also Morris Binder. So these are all people that who will come to in the in the in the podcast at later points. Bob Simmons did the stunts for um, for the films. Peter Hunt edited the films, and then actors that often would appear in Warwick films include Bernard Lee, who would later go on to be M, Walter Gotol, Desmond Llewellyn, and and many more. Mm. The, the links are all coming together now. So they made colour films, they shot on real locations, they had ambitious action, tight budgets, international actors, and they were often based on best-selling novels. So you could see the theme developing here. They, unfortunately, Irvin Allen and Cubby's relationship 
uh, soured in 1960 after they'd made a film called The Trials of Oscar Wilde and that flopped and they put a lot of money into that and it, it just didn't it just didn't pan out for them and actually led to them falling out with Columbia Pictures who was releasing the films and at that point in fact just before that in 1958 Irving Allen and Cubby had met with Ian Fleming to discuss taking the rights for Bond to make Bond films and actually I don't know how true this is or how apocryphal is but apparently Irvin Allen was quite rude about Bond to Ian Fleming in one of these meetings said that um, the books weren't fit for TV but Cubby was was keen to do it and Cubby actually even tried to buy the rights to Casino Royale as well from Gregory Ratoff's widow he'll come into the story later on because he's the guy who bought the um, rights for Casino Royale but the films that were sort of interesting him at this time to Cubby was um, he, he had a big interest in North by Northwest and Guns of Navarone. And they were the sort of films that he really wanted to move on to working in. So that's um, that's Warwick films and quite an interesting story there. And then I guess this is, this is where it starts to become more recognisable for Bond fans. So moving on from, from Warwick films, after the uh, Broccoli and Alan, that, that partnership after it fell apart, this left Cubby looking for a new project and looking for a new production company. He met with uh, Wolf Mankiewicz, who's uh, a friend of his and a British playwright. And uh, during that meeting, they revealed that he knew the other person that was interested in these Bond stories that Cubby was interested in. Cubby says, I used to read the Bond books, but I figured that one of the major studios would have options on them. It was the writer Wolf Mankiewicz who told me that only Casino Royale was owned by a studio but that a man named Harry Saltzman had an option of six of the others, but no deal to finance making the films. So there's the, you can see, we're now starting to develop these connections. So there was a meeting arranged where they would they would meet each other and, and discuss with Cubby wanting to buy the rights, buy those options from Harry Saltzman. Saltzman wouldn't, didn't agree to this and wanted to go 50-50, which they did they agreed to so this led to the creation of the production company eon uh, which stands for everything or nothing which is very much you'll notice throughout this and throughout the rest of the podcasts cubby's mantra very much everything or nothing and then it's holding company dan jack which was named after their two wives first names dana and jacqueline so then after having they've got the the options and the, and the rights they just need need it to get it financed so Cubby says, 28 years ago, Harry Saltzman and I walked into 729 7th Avenue in New York to United Artists for a meeting with Arthur Krim. I found 10 people in the meeting, including young David Picker, who had just been given the job of head of production. And Arthur said to him, Cubby, tell me about James Bond. And so Cubby basically pitched it to him and sold it to him. He said he was, a, he was the salesman. Picker, the young, the young David Picker said, I'm very familiar with James Bond, but they were more interested in how it was going to be made and what what their plans were. Cubby said he'd budgeted for the first one at $1.1 million, um, but United Artists agreed to $1 million. And then in 45 minutes, they'd uh, struck the deal for, for the first six. So that's pretty yeah, <laughs> impressive meeting to go into that and come out with a six-picture deal. He said, when Arthur and I shook hands, I suddenly remembered that it was my second wedding, wedding anniversary. I thought, I'm here in New York with my wife and our one-year-old baby, and I've got a deal to make James Bond pictures on Flying High. So, What a day. Uh, yeah, I mean, this was pretty soon after, which we'll cover later on in the episode, but he, he'd have quite a low point 
and so this came at the the right time for him and so this is this is where it all starts now then they go on to make Doctor No which is the first Bond film which we will cover again uh, as we as we get we cover Doctor No and Eon that, and Harry Saltzman we'll cover this yeah in great detail so yeah that's that's the early sort of the genesis seeds yes of of the Bond story So Cubby and Saltzman had a had a deal with with United Artists that they wouldn't just make Bond films. They also had a, a kind of contract where they'd also have to make another film every year that wasn't a Bond film. And and Saltzman tended to well, pretty much always was the guy going out making all these different films. But Cubby, his focus was largely Bond. His that's that's where his interests lie. And he really he, he's he's not actually produced many films outside of Bond, um, but two the two main ones during this period were Call Me Buana and and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Call Me Buana. Do either of you know much about Call Me Buana? No. I found it incredibly hard to. I, there's not even a trailer or anything. It sounds quite good. I'm a quite big fan of Bob Hope films, but I've never seen I've never seen this film. According to um, Cubby's uh, autobiography, when the when the snow melts, he he talks about his time working on this, and he was. Asked by journalist and uh, affiliate Donald Zeck, who's also the, the co-author of the biography, if they had any ideas for a non-Bond film. And Saltzman, who, who previously made a film called I Am Petticoat with, with Bob Hope, suggested that they do a, a Bob Hope movie. Zeck replied saying that he actually had a, he had a, a British rock and roll group called The Beatles and they had sell-out crowds and they, they should make a film about that. Saltzman laughed him out of the room and said, why would he want to make a film about four young long-haired kids from Liverpool? when he had Bob Hope. So United Artists made the Beatles film with Walter Shenson, Hard Day's Night, way more successful than Call Me Buona, as, mm. as you would imagine. <laughs> the film uh, was released in 1963. It, so- it sounds ridiculous, but it's if you've ever seen Bob Hope's early films, it's pretty standard for, for him. He plays a character called Matt Merriweather, who's a New York writer who is passing off his uncle's memoirs um, of explorations in Africa as his own. So in his in his house, he's he's like got all these African models, and he apparently has like African noises playing in the room when people come in, and it's all just a complete just a complete lie. But he's recruited by the United States government and NASA to locate a missing secret space probe before it can be located by hostile forces. Because he's an explorer <laughs> in Africa, they want him to do this. So it's it's just your standard screwball film with with Bob Hope. But uh, it, it had quite a lot of... It had golf for Arnold Palmer in it. He makes a brief cameo um, playing a round of golf with Hope. Obviously, Hope's a massive golf fan. And I don't imagine we're going to be talking about um, I Call Me Buana much in, across the series, so I might as well go go to town here. Um, uh, and it's interestingly a scene that's revisited in the, spy, uh, the film Spies Like Us, uh, where Hope makes the same cameo appearance, which is interesting. Uh, the film was um, originally intended to be shot in location on Kenya, but there was the big problems of the Mau Mau uprising, um, and then so the producers would only let the second unit go there. It was a it was a production that was it, it wasn't an easy production, and um, it was like, there was lots of problems with the writing, all this kind of stuff. Edie Adams, who who was the, the the main actress in it, she thought she was going to Africa and had had painful worries about it. She said that the film was almost written by as it went along and initially her character was a nuclear scientist and then a big game hunter but when she turned up on set on on the set she met a stunt woman dressed dressed like her character throwing a male stuntman in a jiu-jitsu throw and then she found out she was actually going to be a secret agent in it 
So it's um, it, yeah, the, the the film was just kind of pulled together as as it went along, and because of that, in October 1962, after being in production for two weeks, uh, Cubby hired a novelist called Paul Jericho to do a fast rewrite of it. And he basically worked. There were six writers that worked on the script before it finished. And apparently, there were just hundreds and hundreds of jokes about bumbling explorer and CIA agents searching for this space capsule in Africa, but no story. So he had to pull all of these jokes together to turn it into a logical story. Uh, and Cubby paid him two thousand five hundred pounds for four weeks and credited work on on that film, which is quite a lot of money, mm. I imagine, at the time for a writer. And uh, another interesting story is produce, uh, production director Sid Kane recalled that originally they planned to have loads of British uh, animals released from British zoos into the into this golf course and film it all with all these animals running around a golf course. But they shelved the idea when it caused expensive damage. Uh, <laughs> so that's quite interesting. Um, so in in call call me Buana, there's actually a reference in. From Russia with Love, which you might remember, where on on the wall there's a picture of the the main one of the main characters, Anita Ekberg, uh, a, wall, a poster on the wall, and the, the Russian tries to escape through it, so she escapes through the mouth and uh, he shoots them, and he yes. says she should have kept her mouth shut, and that's a reference to Call Me Buana, but it's actually in the uh, in Fleming. Uh, book, but it's Marilyn Monroe right, right. Uh, in the thing. So that's quite an interesting story. You can see they're rather having a bit of fun and, and, and pulling in different elements. So that was that was Call Me Buana. Interesting, different take on um, Cubby's skills from 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 the Bond <laughs> from the Bond films, and then that leads on to an even stranger uh, divergence from the Bond films, which I don't think I need to explain. But this is Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which was released in 1968, which has enormous links to the the, the Bond series and uh, this one whereas uh, Call Me Buana was was Saltzman and Bro- Broccoli working together this was just Cubby this was his film he was the, he was the producer on it and according to well, Fleming used to tell stories about flying cars to his son and he decided to after he had a heart attack in 1961 he decided to write up the story as a, as a novel and he interesting st- fact he wrote the book in longhand as his wife had confiscated his typewriter to force him to rest <laughs> after he'd, he'd had the heart attack but he, he still did it and the novel was published in 1964 after Ian Flame's death it became one of the biggest selling children's books of the year and could be broccoli obviously read the novel and he, he he wasn't actually that keen on doing it he, he didn't think he, he wanted to produce it until he saw Mary Poppins and how successful it is and said this could be the next Mary Poppins I, I want to do mm-hmm. this it was the first in a multi-picture deal Dick Van Dyke signed with United Artists and uh, Sally Ann Howes played the female lead and Ken Hughes uh, directed from a Roald Dahl script so uh, interestingly the songs were written by the Sherman Brothers who also composed the music for Mary Poppins Ken Adam uh, designed the hero car and six Chitty Chitty Bang Bang cars were actually created for, for the film it was the 10th most popular film at the US box office in 1969. Um, however, because of its high budget, it lost United Artists an estimated £8 million during the theatrical run. Wow. And that goes on further, and I, I'll try not to go too much, uh, talk too much about Harry Saltzman in, in, in this, but five films produced by Harry Saltzman, including The Battle of Britain, meant that they lost United Artists £19 million that year. Um, and it con- and contributed to United Artists scaling back its operations in the UK. Wow. Which you wouldn't think about with a with a film like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. But mm. um, it was just so expensive to make. Interesting. I just thought I'd pick up a bit of critic information from it. Uh, Roger Ebert. Uh, Ebert um, he says, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang contains about the best two-hour children's movie you could hope. 
with a marvellous magical auto and lots of adventure and nutty old grandpa and a mean baron and some funny dances and a couple of scary moments. And just finally, Peter Jackson owns one of the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang cards. Mm. So yeah, so big big film and if if you didn't know a lot about movies and you didn't know a lot about producers and directors, I don't think you'd ever even think that Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was produced by the same person as all of the Bond films. Absolutely not. It actually feels quite Disney. Yeah, and, that, and if you type in Chitty Bang Bang, one of the Google questions that comes up is, is Chitty Chitty Bang Bang a Disney mm. film? And I seem to remember having drunken arguments that, with people who thought it was. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and, and you know, it's it's just uh, it's just a big one, isn't it? And and one of the, one of the, I imagine it's a favourite of of many people um, around the world. So they were Cubby's sort of side projects, and. But while all they were going on, you had the James Bond uh, films ticking on in the background. They did Doctor No, From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, and they all became you know incrementally bigger hits. At the end of Goldfinger, early prints of the film said that James Bond would return in Honor Her Majesty's Secret Service. But at the time, in the press, because of this growing success of the James Bond film, you had Kevin McClory, who had, at this point, sued Ian Fleming for the rights to Thunderball and... Um, the film scripts which the Thunderball books are based on and so he was angling himself to make a, a Bond film himself and the reason I bring this up in this podcast in Cubby this is more of a footnote but as I mentioned at the start of the episode this is the one Bond film that it didn't act as a, a, a isn't named as the producer on it this is produced by Kevin McClory him and Harry are exec producers on this one and what happened was is that Kevin McClory was angling to make the film he had offered it to Richard Burton um but the week bef- week after the Goldfinger premiere, in a case of everything or nothing, Brendan, you'll like this, <laughs> they decided to do a deal with Kevin McClory that, to prevent him from making the rival film himself. So he, they threw, they went all in with Kevin McClory because they wanted to make Thunderball. In fact, that was the first Bond film they wanted to make, but they couldn't do it because of the McClory situation. But McClory was desperate to make the film. They came to an agreement and they paid McClory... $250,000 in cash plus 20% profits on the proviso that McClory could produce, but that he wouldn't try and make another film for another 10 years. And actually, it was a very amicable agreement. Mm. And Cubby is actually the godfather to Kevin McClory's children, which I thought was quite oh. interesting. Mm, very interesting, yeah. And again, we'll cover a lot more of this on Thunderball and McClory episodes later on. But basically, Cubby said, we didn't want anyone else to make Thunderball. We had the feeling that if anyone else came in and made their own Bond film, it would be bad for our series. And so that's what they did. And actually, at this time, they were planning to make a film called The Pass Beyond Kashmir with Sean Connery, Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli. But in fact, to meet the United Artists' schedule, they had to drop plans to make that film and uh, went ahead with uh, Thunderball instead. And actually, there was, according to reports, quite a lot of tension on set between um, the regular crew and Kevin McClory and Broccoli and Saltzman. They were all very sort of used to doing it one way. And then Kevin McClory came in and that caused quite a lot of um, tension on set of that film. But yeah, that's it. And I guess the, the flip side of the everything or nothing situation is, is they went all in with Kevin McClory, but when the the people who held the rights to Casino Royale, Royale came along, they said nothing. They said, you go make it yourselves. And they knew that they were going to make an absolute fist of it, and they did. And again, we'll cover that on the Casino Royale episode. So they went everything with Thunderball, nothing with Casino Royale. Mm. On to me. Uh, just another little footnote in the in the Cubby story. 
1966, Cubby was in Japan with Harry Saltzman, Ken Adam, Lewis Gilbert and Freddie Young. Again, we're going to cover those in future podcasts. But the main story, what you need to know about this, is they had a ticket booked on a flight, a BOAC flight 911, and he actually cancelled. They cancelled their tickets so that they could go and see a ninja demonstration. Because of because of the, the, the film You Only Live Twice, it was you know, it was being set in Japan and they, they wanted the authenticity. They, they then cancelled that flight so they could see this demonstration. Sadly, that flight had been airborne for 25 minutes, crashed into the foothills of Mount Fuji in, in Japan. Oh. So, I mean, it's a it's another... I mean, You Only Live Twice is quite an ironic... Is that that was the title of the film, really. Because that's, that's yeah. like, the, most of the team, the producing, the production team that survived that just by chance, just by the fact that they wanted to go and see this demonstration. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Amazing. So something that definitely isn't a footnote in the, the Bond uh, history is the, the Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman split, which is, is a series of events that kind of went on for quite a long time. They parted ways in 1976 as, as business partners, partners, but the the actual process of, of getting to that point went on for quite a long time. And it was something that underpinned a, a large part of their relationship throughout making uh, a lot of the Bond films. According to Cubby in his, in his book, he says, this was no longer the normal disagreements between co-producers fighting it out over such things as casting scripts or production costs, nor was it merely a clash of personalities, though that had happened for sure. The conflict between us went far deeper than that. And that's kind of, it's one of the, in, the, in all of the film, you know, people working on, films, directors, everything. This is one of the big stories, isn't it, about a film company having problems with with the with the team that went behind it, which it's which seems strange really because of you associate those two so closely together that to 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 understand that they have this really difficult relationship. Inter- another quote from from his book as well, which I thought was interesting was Years have passed since then, during which Harry lost his dear wife Jackie and suffered a serious illness himself. But in reviewing my life and career, I can't ignore an episode which threatened to bring down everything I had worked for and put in jeopardy not only the fortunes of Dana and myself, but also of our whole family. It was one of the blackest periods I ever had to face, but for Dana's fantastic resource and devotion, I might have thrown in the towel. As it was, we took on the battle of a lifetime and won. So you can see how important this is, what such a big deal it was that last, lasted so long. And it, and it really came down to, there's a lot of factors in it. And I won't go into too much depth about, about the Saltzman side of it here, but just really about what could be said about that 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 relationship and, and what happened. But one of the things that he does talk about is that Saltzman had a kind of hot and cold relationship with Bond. He wasn't all in on Bond. He, he, he was a businessman. He wanted to make more movies. He wanted to... He maybe he wanted to use Bond to, for more than than Cubby did, but Cubby was so focused on Bond itself that it, it was a very difficult relationship. He says, given a dozen pair of hands, Saltzman would be happiest having all the fingers in different pies, and you can kind of see that with all the films that he worked on and all the deals. And that goes further, not just films; it goes into his business or the way that he, he ran business and all the things he wanted to get involved with. He said, by contrast, James Bond cruising along to become perhaps the greatest success in motion pictures was a sufficient challenge as far as I was concerned. So even as far back as our second or third picture together, Harry had one eye over the other side of the mountain. 
saying that he's just he was never fully on it. He was just always looking at the next big thing to do. Apparently, he'd make appearances on the set or a location, do some shouting, and then he'd be off to France or Italy or somewhere else working on some other some other project, and um, or taking over a company, doing what he loves the most of all, playing the celebrated entrepreneur. There's lots of stories about on set problems that caused it uh, that, that that happened on set that didn't just make issues for those two it affected the rest of the crew as well it was a problem that it, it caused loads of problems um and there, there's a famous thing where saltzman had this elephant chase idea in the man with the golden gun i don't know if you you know that um, come across this yeah yeah and 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 they and broccoli and, and people were saying you can't have an elephant chase scene they're, they're too slow they don't it's going to be really boring for people to watch an elephant chase scene and saltzman said he we well, went off and he spoke to some local villagers who said they could make shoes for the elephants to make them run faster <laughs> so he ordered 60 <laughs> pairs of these shoes um they never filmed it could Cubby didn't let it happen because it was just so ridiculous but he had these hairbrained ideas and then uh, there was another one as well where he was talking about um in Live and Let Die, he there, there was a scene where Roger's in bed and he thinks he's in bed with Jane Seymour, but he turns over and there's a crocodile in bed. And there's this whole conversation about Cubby saying, well, why is the crocodile in the bed? Why, won't he eat Roger? And all this kind of stuff. And it just went <laughs> off for ages with Saltzman saying, no, he's he's just there. He's just got into the bed. So he had all these ideas, but apparently he, some, half of his ideas were great and half of them just were useless. So they caused all these rifts on set and they were arguing about them and, and all this kind of stuff. So after after all this stuff, he, he was investing in lots of new um, ideas. He was taking money out of the business, and this was causing lots of big problems for, for, for Harry and Cubby. And he says about it, he says, I don't think he ever consciously set out to bring me down. The plain fact is he was in a spot. He was in a corner with his back against the wall, and he wanted to get out of it by using me and Dana and our money to pay the banks. Well, there was no way I was ever going to let that happen. And then the legal battle around Dansack happened. Um, Michael Wilson, interestingly, who studied law uh, at university, he was the attorney, one of the attorneys that, that was working with Cubby on that. And it, it all kind of started around the spy who loved me. And there all sorts of things happened. Swiss bankers claiming Harry had pledged 100% of the company to cover liabilities, said to be close to 20 million. Gary Hamilton, at the, and this is an example of the the problems that they were having causing problems for everyone else. So Guy Hamilton at the time said he, he was going to leave the picture. He just couldn't be bothered to deal with these arguments and these financial discussions going on. And it was that point that it really got worse because it was affecting directors and, and, and all these important people on the films. And Cubby says quite often that business people have these arguments. You, you have these problems with money, but as soon as it affects the other people that are making the films, you, you can't do it because the films won't get made. So in they, they split in 1976, and, and then in 1978, the court decision, Salzman and Broccoli had allegedly agreed to dissolve Dan Jack in 1972, but Broccoli later allegedly refused to honour the agreement. So these problems still going on. And then eventually, due to the, his financial difficulties, Salzman sold his 50% stake in Dan Jack to United Artists in 1975, and subsequently his health declined and he became depressed. And that was really the end of it. A bit of a sad end to the whole thing. But you can kind of see mm. that. And if you read Cubby's book, it's he's quite sad about it. He's, he's, he, those two were like, you know, they built the Bond empire originally. But to, to fall out over that was quite a big thing. So, yeah, that's that's the uh, the split. And then obviously they went two separate ways. From what I understand uh, from reading about it as well, they sort of, before the split, they would sort of take turns on who produced which film. Like one would take a more active role specifically yeah. around like 
you know, Man with the Golden Gun, I think, was more of a Harry film. Or, or, yeah, I know you, or we talked about this before, didn't we? I, I didn't actually, um, I've not I've not read anything on that in researching this, but yeah. But I, yeah, I, I guess after the split then, uh, then, you know, you're into, you know, Pete Roger Moore era, Spy Love Me, Moonraker, For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy. And this is when we start to see Barbara Broccoli start coming in and Michael G. Wilson, his um, uh, sort of adopted son from Donna, Donna's previous wife and then Michael G. Wilson becomes co-producer on View to a Kill Living Daylights and so on and then Barbara comes in on on GoldenEye and um, that's sort of his his ongoing legacy from there but I guess um, in terms of like the the honours that were bestowed on him during his life I'll just sort of whiz through that in 1982 Cubby was honoured with the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award um, for his work in film at the Oscars. Um, now, the Irving Thalberg Award is very rarely actually presented at the Oscars. It's only ever been given out 39 times um, and it's for producers who've made an outstanding contribution to the industry. So obviously this is a massive accolade for Cubby at the time. And actually, really interestingly, when Cubby was coming up through the film industry, you mentioned he was a jewellery salesman at one point. Yeah. Uh, at one point, he actually took samples to Irving Thalberg's office. Uh, yeah, um, I read that. I, I had that in my notes, but I thought I'll leave that bit out because that's a little bit too much information. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. But yeah, so he was given this award um, in 1982. Um, recent recipients of that include Kathy Kennedy, Frank Marshall, also you know Francis Ford Coppola's got it, Warren Beatty, Clint Eastwood, George Lucas. So it's a really prestigious award. So this was a huge moment for him. And actually, during those Oscars. They had a huge 007 number. Sheena Easton sang For Your Eyes Only. Um, and then they had Dr. No and Blofeld. And actually the actors who played Blo- um, Jaws and Oddjob came on stage and did this whole skit. Wow. Um, yeah, it's quite funny to watch. Roger Moore then introduced Cubby. And actually Cubby, he was just so effusive and you know great for, for everyone. He, he thanked Irvin Allen and Harry Saltzman for their contributions to his career. And Cubby called it the greatest honour of his life. And like the roll call for the party afterwards is ridiculous. It's like Cary Grant, Roger Moore, just all these amazing names. Um, it's probably one of those, you know, people say, if you could take a time machine to any place at any time, that's going <laughs> to be one of them. <laughs> As we discussed in the View to a Kill episode, he's got a stage at uh, Pinewood named after him, the 007 stage that was named in his honour in, in 1985. Obviously, it subsequently has burnt down since uh, in 2006, I believe, and, and rebuilt, but it's still the Cubby Broccoli stage. In 1990, he was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and there's pictures of him receiving that. Barbara Broccoli's there, Michael Wilson's there. So that must have been a great moment for him. And then, and, and then it, it sort of posthumously, there is a cinema at the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford, and that is home to the Cubby Broccoli Cinema. It's got 106 seats. And in 2012, it was one of the only three venues in the UK that screened the Olympic opening ceremony in super high vision. So that's sort of his the accolades that he's received in his lifetime. But as I said, his his legacy continues to this day. Just to touch on his personal life, he was he was married three times. At the age of 31, he married Gloria Blondell who was an actress. 1951, he married Nedra Clark. <clears throat> Not at the same time. He did get divorced. Uh, he married Nedra Clark, who was the widow of uh, singer Buddy Clark. Sadly, she died shortly after giving birth to their daughter, Tina. And then in 1959, 
he met Dana Wilson at a Hollywood party. Who, so he was then a widower with two children, and both both had uh, swore they'd seen each other before, and we were like, oh. And then he remembered that he'd sold her a Christmas tree. Wow! During a, during, during a, his film, you know, career wasn't going so well, so he he'd, she'd stopped to buy a tree from him in the street, and he said he felt like it was some sort of destiny, and he said there are some customers you just cannot forget. So um, got everything, everything or nothing. <laughs> so then, then Cubby spends the next six weeks, you know wooing her and it it works and they get married in Las Vegas uh, that June so pretty quickly um, with Cary Grant as best man as you do not bad and so marrying Cubby changed uh, Dana's life like massively she upsticks and, and then goes and follows the Bond journey as it were and although not credited she is a massive part of the Bond story, even even all the way back to the casting of the first Bond, the casting of Sean Connery. It was her who who urged them that to to cast him because there was a bit of doubt in them in their mind, and so she was basically the the last one to to have put her eyes over Sean Connery and and knew instantly that, that he was the man. Yeah, that crops up in a lot of research I've done with other characters where they've said they that she was at the casting and. Mm. You knew that you had to impress her as much as Cubby because she would she may well make the final decision. Yeah, yeah very uh, very important role. Yeah, so it's like a sort of an unofficial advisor role, really, because it was never yeah. never credited. Um, so she sat in most production discussions. She read early screenplays. Uh, she was a writer herself, so that that helped. She could, she knew about structure, and Cubby said Dana is just as involved with the Bond pictures as I am. Her input has always been valuable, often crucial. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's in, in, incredible uh, to have someone who's got that, who's that influential, but is not, she's happy just to sit back and... Be quite you know, nice, I think, um, being able to be involved, but not have the, all the the, the, hmm. the additional worries that come with it that probably come with being credited with, with the producer role and things like that. That's, so, that's true, because she, she still knows gets that to be involved. She's so heavily but, involved with those films, but... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, she didn't want to cause resentment. Was the main reason that for not getting heavily involved. So no, no media attention. She, you know, Bond premieres. She would just sort of stand by Cubby's side, and and she she was a throughout the Bond pre Bond producing career when it wasn't going so well for Cubby. Dana was really important, as I touched on earlier about um, helping Cubby, especially after financial c- catastrophe of the trials of Oscar Wilde. It didn't get released in America due to its uh, homosexual themes, and at the time, obviously, that's that was a, a big deal. So he he went into a slump and was quite depressed, mm. but her she remained uh, calm and and kept that optimism and and said that something was bound to turn up. And two years later, yeah, Bond something came along. Did didn't turn it? up? Yeah, it did. Cubby said that that Dana was the perfect foil for his personality. Strong, motivated woman who believed that their success was based on the strength of their family. So they had a daughter together, Barbara Rockley, who we will come back and do an episode on her herself. Cubby became also became a mentor to Dana's teenage son, 
at the time, Michael G. Wilson, who again is another huge part of the Pond story. Got to give my grew- fun fact. Yes, go on. <laughs> <laughs> Michael G. Wilson's father was the original Batman. <laughs> Excellent. That's Just really Wilson. That in there. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so though both of the children, they grew up on the Bond sets, and we'll we'll talk about them when they get their own episodes. But there's some incredible uh, early life stories. So now they're they they are the co-producers now. So the the family legacy lives on. Can be said about Bond that Bond is bigger than any one individual actor. James Bond is the real star. It's always one notch bigger than the actor who plays him. It's like a space station. It stays in orbit, whichever hero is up there at any given time. And it's because his ability to see that it's made his career. You know, he And he kept it in the family. And that's what's incredible. It's still now part of the Broccoli family. That yeah. legacy lives on. And Michael G. Wilson's son is also now involved in the production as well. He's oh really? Yeah, didn't know that. Following very much similar path to Michael and uh, yeah. Barbara as well. Yeah. So it's it's really really good to see, and I think it adds to something that keeps that special feeling with Bond. I think. So yeah, Cubby died in 1996, age 87. Uh, at his Beverly Hills home. Uh, he'd actually undergone heart bypass surgery a year before his death. So the last year of his life was was a bit of a struggle. And that was that was the year that they were filming filming Goldeneye. Um, he was, he's buried in Forest Lawn, Hollywood Hills Cemetery in Los Angeles. And the funeral itself was, as you would imagine, full of Bond cast members. There were, you know, Desmond Llewellyn, Mariam Darbo, uh, Timothy Dalton. Uh, I've, I've, I've read that Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton appears Rosalind there, but I couldn't find any kind of picture picture evidence of, of that. Um, interestingly, T- Tim, Tim Dalton was actually um, a, a pallbearer there, and there's an actual photo where you you can mm. see him doing that. So that's so that's it really. He he, I think he's obviously he created the most successful, longest running film series of all time, and mm-hmm. succeeded in holding it to those kind of values that nobody else has ever managed to do he's if you if that was a, co- a a film company owning that and they were selling it off to different producers and writers every time you wouldn't have that uh, and it's that's that's that mantle that's been taken up by by barbara and and, and michael g wilson because it's not a business as, per se is it it's a family mm-hmm. it's just the fact that's what the family does that's what they live for same yeah. way as if you see small businesses that, that that families have that they care about them in just passed down ways. from generation to generation isn't it yeah, and you learn all those things, and you you pick up things along the way. And I mean, I, I imagine there's they've made decisions, as you said, Brendan, that they make decisions because it's a family and not because it's a business. And there may be points at the in the in the story where they maybe did something that didn't make as much money as they would have done if they didn't make that decision. But it's to the test of time, hasn't it? And it's um, mm-hmm. it succeeded just because of that. He was uh, it. The New York Times said said something interesting about him in, the, um, in his obituary. He was the father of the modern action hero, the progenitor of characters later played by Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone. So, and you can kind of see that, can't you? Like, it, he's James. If you compare James Bond now to Schwarzenegger and Stallone, it sounds ridiculous. But in those days, you didn't have Schwarzenegger and Stallone. He 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 developed yeah. from they developed from James Bond, didn't they? That There's, iconography of of the action hero, yeah, absolutely. And and. 
I, I always think about this. This isn't a quote from anyone but me, but to to kind of understand the Bond series is to kind of see the zeitgeist of all these different eras of film and stuff as they as they as they go along. So if you look at take it at any point, there's not a lot to Bond really. If you if you look at a Bond film. No Time to Die, if you watch that as a film, you'd go, good film, interesting, it's about Spy. It's the whole journey of it that's important. And and that's Cubby, isn't it? Because that's his journey. He's created that and he's mm-hmm. held held that, that story to, to his kind of how he wants to do it, how the family wants to do it. I, I tried to find comments on Cubby's death from, from the Bonds. I couldn't find all of them, but... Um, Interesting one from Sean. Obviously, there, there was a lot of fallout with with Sean um, at a certain point. There's lots of stories about that. But he said, Sean said, my previous differences with Kubi Rocky were well known, but I recently took the opportunity to make my peace with him. I'm extremely sorry to hear of his loss. He will be missed. Which I thought was quite nice after you read all those different stories that he, he says. P- yeah. Piers Brosnan, uh, not a day went by during the making of GoldenEye that I didn't think of Kubi, and we wanted it to be the success it was for him. I'm deeply saddened that he's gone. Good, good stuff from uh, from the Bond guys. I, yeah. I I really struggled to find anything from Moore, which is very strange because I would imagine there would be hundreds of quotes from from Roger about it. But yeah, I, yeah. I struggled. I even went through his his books to find it. But um, yeah, you can... would assume that that's a given, though. They were best friends. You know, they were best friends. There's some amazing stories with Roger and and, yeah. and Cubby, um, and uh, we'll we'll talk about them probably more in detail in in, in some of the in some of the other bits. Other things about him, really, he, he was uh, into thoroughbred racing. We talked about <laughs> horse racing in Future Kill, but yeah, he he was get, well, quite into that. He's, he had a horse horse called Brocco, didn't he? Most successful horse was Brocco, mm. uh, who who captured some major stakes races as the one million dollar Breeders' Cup juvenile in nineteen ninety three and nineteen ninety four Santa Anita Derby. He he says finally, um, I thought I'd end it on a quote, but I think your quote was actually better, uh, Brendan. That we were lucky to stumble upon Ian Fleming and Bond was a bit of a good fortune. The rest was all hard work, which I think is pretty much mm-hmm. true. The, the, it, yeah. Just getting the Bond series is... If you if, if you were a rubbish producer or director and you got Bond, it could be rubbish. It, well, many, many, many action heroes came and went, right? But this yeah. one endured. And it, yeah. I think it, it, when you think about the history of it, you can sort of say Sean Connery... George Lazenby, Roger Moore, they were all basically, they happened on a roll, right? Yeah. It was obviously really important that they recast the character and that gave him the longevity. Yeah. But actually then when you look at the story between Harry leaving, you've got that era where, you know, they transitioned from the 80s into 90s, which actually culturally was very, very different. And Cubby, he navigated that. You know, he yeah. made the brave decision of bringing in Dalton he could see the future that, you know, he was planning ahead. He brought Barbara in. He brought Michael G. Wilson in. He plotted Pierce Brosnan's arrival. Yeah. He re- he was really visionary in seeing that and seeing that into the next century. And, and yeah. you know, that it, yeah. is it's, carrying on as we speak. He's, I just think that there's no... I mean, there's there's producers that you, you know of, but none of them are history, are they? They're... There's a lot of producers that you'd think, oh, he's a good producer. You worked on those films, but Cubby Broccoli is almost like legend. He's yeah, he's he. Yeah. There's no producer as famous as as, as him for creating anything, um, yeah. especially for that long period of time. And he's yeah, he's just a really. I, I, I'm gonna if you read if you get time read read his autobiography because his life was absolutely ridiculous. It was just one of those almost. I, mean, I, I can't believe they've not made a film of him yet. There must be there must be one along the way at some point, but. Um, mm. 
but yeah, there's there's so much to him, and we could have gone on on for hours on this podcast of all the stuff that that we'd found out about him. But um, yeah, yeah, just just so so much to to go through, and just a just phenomenal man. And 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 I suppose one of the the most important things to say about him is that everybody who ever spoke about him talks about him just being really nice. And like, what's the the stories about? You know, on the I can't remember which, which film it was on. It was set in Egypt. Which one was in Egypt? Spine of me. me, and and that then then running out of food, so could be making everyone spaghetti bolognese and all these kind of things that just yeah you you wouldn't get that on a, a normal film set. It's on a Bourne film. Oh, they never they never do that on Bourne films. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? And you look at the um, and, and I suppose it's a testament to the fact that the company was theirs. Not producers don't normally own the company. If you're a producer, yeah. you're you're a producer for hire. You, you've got to get the work done to get paid. But they yeah. had the the luxury of saying, "We're not. We're only doing the stuff we want to do. We're not doing this to get paid. We're doing this because it's ours." But um, obviously, I th- I've got a really interesting quote from Dana that um, sums him up quite nicely. Like I said, everyone always said what, what family atmosphere he, he created. But I think the, the the other important thing to remember is he always had the audience in mind. Yes. Uh, and this quote from Dana is, when we were in a strange city anywhere in the world and if there was a Bond film playing, Cubby would go and sit and listen to the reaction of the audience to find out what they like, what they didn't like. He had a great respect for the public. And I think that's yeah. that sums him up really, doesn't it? He, he's a, you know, he's a great businessman, but also he, he's got a great eye for what people want to see. Yeah. And you've got yeah. and you've got to care. And he does care about the audience. I, I watched it bit of documentary where barbara was talking about him and she said that after the film was released he'd go into the back of cinemas when the bond film was on and just stand at the back watching what everyone what the response was but because he he enjoyed seeing people enjoy his film he wasn't just normal producer wouldn't go in there and watch that they get paid they're done they're out there and then but he he it was for him learning from that made a difference because it was gonna it's going to affect all the stuff that went on afterwards and he's not thinking right, for the next film, I need to do this to make the money. He's thinking, I'm going to be doing this or my family's going to be doing this for 200 years. I've got to think, got to keep building this the same way you build a family business. You've got to you've got to make it last long and, and do it properly. And he obviously saw that in Barbara and Michael yeah. uh, because, and, and that rubbed off, you know. Yeah. Because we're, we're still at that stage where <clears throat> you believe that they're doing it for the audience. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, you mm-hmm. definitely don't, and, and I suppose there's there's films where, I, I, I actually, you probably, it's a, it's something that if you're watching a Bond film, you feel that it's losing that. And you look at maybe Quantum. I think Quantum's probably because of the, all the problems they had on it. It it feels like it doesn't quite have that that TLC that you expect from a Bond film because mm. it, it's a bit far removed, isn't it, from 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 the, the kind of warmth that you get from the other ones. But if they started making Bond films that didn't have that. It wouldn't succeed. It would just people would start watching it. It wouldn't be interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. it'd be fast and sure furious, which you'd probably <laughs> quite like, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan doesn't like Fast and the Furious. Just to just to clarify, although he does talk about it quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> on on that note, should we wrap things up? And yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, I guess on next week's episode, we're going to go into Barbara Broccoli. Absolutely. Yep. And the the Cubby Broccoli con- legacy continues. Uh, another fascinating story to delve into there as well. But thanks for listening uh, to this episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. 
please give us a review, subscribe and like wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you want to contact us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, we're on James Bond A to Z. And if they want to email us, what's the email address? Uh, our email address is podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingemels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.